Welcome back to The Dark Side. I'm your host, Brianna. And I'm Dyson. And this is Dark Adaptation. Welcome to episode 30. 30. (laughs) 30. A small little milestone, you know? 30 episodes, and... Well, you know, kind of 30 episodes. Yeah, sort of 30, kind of going on 40. More likely, like, towards 40. But, like, you know, when you did episode 20, I said, Oh, Dyson, I would like you to do every 20 episodes. I vividly remember that. Like, we got, like, 10-ish more. I know. And then you're up again. And then I'm I'm up to bat, baby. Then it's you again. I'm going to knock it out of the park again. Parliament Hill Hauntings 2.0. 2.0. That opening, though. Oh. <laughs> proud of yourself? Very much so. Yeah, I was proud of you, too. Yeah. You're not actually going to do Parliament Hill 2.0, are you? <laughs> the people but do not want that. No. <laughs> no I gotta I switch it up. People I, I wait will. every 20-ish episodes for you, and then they're like, ah, damn it. <laughs> Again. Again. <laughs> Um, oh shit, what else was I gonna say? Uh, well, I guess I was just gonna ask how you're doing, you know, you're a bit, you're a bit sweaty in here. Uh, it's an understatement, it is a swamp in here. <laughs> it's foul. It's, it it's, is so hot. It is like, I know people always complain it's so hot, but like, it's, there's no relief. Air conditioner's going, there was three fans going, and it doesn't matter, it's still so hot. You go outside, you can't even get fresh air because it's so hot, and now we had to turn the fans off to record, and it's hot. It's sweltering. I'm using the word sweltering to describe this. We are in a fucking heat wave. Yeah, and looking on the map, it's like everywhere's like, yeah, it's hot, and then where we are on the map, it's like, extreme! Yeah, we're, we're we're in that stupid red zone. Uh... Okay, let's stop complaining for now. Yeah, you get the you get the picture. People are like, "Yeah, we're also local. We know it's hot." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, hopefully everyone enjoyed uh, Danelle's story last week, episode twenty nine, where we talked about her survival story. I actually got some positive feedback from a few people about that episode that they really enjoyed it. And um, one of my longtime friends, her name is Summer. What's up? I know you're listening. She said it was her favorite so far. Yay. So, like, I love hearing feedback like that. It makes me happy that people like what we're doing, and it makes me feel like I'm doing the stories justice. So it's um, always a really nice compliment. Thank you for your nice words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I also wanted to, um, while we're shouting people out, you know, I wanted to say thank you to uh, Elfman underscore Danny. For leaving us a five-star review on Podchaser. It was nice. really nice. Yeah. Yeah, they um, they said that they thought we were funny and that we're informative and they really like the show and they said they highly recommend five stars. So I was like, yo. Oh, get out of here, Danny. Thank you, Elfman Danny. D-E, as I like to call him. <laughs> E-D, Elfman Danny. Elfman Danny. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that people take the time to leave the five-star reviews and... It's, like, so unexpected, right? I just got, like, an email, and it said, like, this person left you a five-star review. And I was like, oh, damn. Yeah. 
makes my heart warm. Yeah. So thank days, you. Days instantly better. Instantly. Instantly. Instantly better. Yes. So, yeah, again, thank you, Elfman Danny. Really appreciate it. I hope you're still listening and you're still enjoying it. And, yeah, shout out to you. You're great. I love you. Also. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the way you were looking at me. <laughs> also, while we're just, you know, sharing the love, shouting people out, I wanted to shout out uh, the podcast 100 Horrors. Because their show is really funny. I love their show. I like think those dudes are great. They have a really cool take um, with how they do their, their show, which is about horror movies. But why don't I let our new friends tell us about their show? Yeah, why don't we let them do it? I just just said it. I just said that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, take it away, boys. Welcome to 100 Horrors, a comedy podcast that seeks to rank the best 100 horror films of all time, as dictated to us by a poster that one of us owns. Every week we bicker over another film in an attempt to give it an overall scare factor and secure its place in the 100 Horrors list. With features such as... And... What would you say to them at a funeral? We take a light-hearted approach to horror cinema so that it can be enjoyed by even the most squeamish of listeners. So whether you're the person who's never seen a horror film in their life or the person who has a tattoo of Leatherface on the right ass cheek, there's something to be enjoyed in every episode of 100 Horrors! <laughs> First... This is going to be a two-parter. I will post an updated August schedule on Instagram. So give us a follow over there to check it out. Because I did not, um, you know, bank on this being a two-parter. But I just kept finding more things to talk about. So oopsie doodle. Yeah, that kind of happens a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Second, a ton of the information for today's episode came from Caitlin Rocket's article in Boulder Weekly. And Caitlin's main source is the author of a true crime novel titled Drifting into Darkness, Murder, Madness, Suicide, and a Death Under Suspicious Circumstances. Oh, suspicious circumstances are the most intriguing of circumstances. Well said. Thank you. It's rather intriguing. I loved him like a son. And that (laughs) is because he is my son. (laughs) (laughs) That reference is going to be understood by 0.01% of our listeners. Yeah, you know what? Those the 0.01% are my homies. <laughs> Let us know if you understand. Okay, so the author's name of this book is Mark Pinsky, and he researched this case for over five years before completing the book that actually came out in June of this year, 2022. Yeah. So I ordered, I ordered it, but like I didn't get it yet, so <laughs> I will read it. <laughs> But in the meantime, thanks, Caitlin Rocket, for your excellent reporting. Yeah. And yeah, so this Mark Pinsky dude, this author, I will be referring to him a lot throughout the episode and quoting him because, like I said, a lot of the information on this case is only available because of his research. As usual, like there's other sources, which are on our website if you're ever interested. But yeah, the final thing I'm going to say is that it's uh, part one, obviously, and we will discuss the victims, the perpetrator, 
with a lot of focus on the perpetrator's adult life and life leading up to the crime. And I know some people are like, yeah, when you talk about a true crime case, especially if there's a murder involved, it should not be about the murderer. It should be about the victim. And like, that's a fair take in some circumstances, you know? But like, you have to talk about the murderer. Yeah, it takes two to tango. And it's really... <laughs> it's terrible to say. <laughs> I agree with you, though. Like, it's... there is As distasteful as it'll be, they're part of the story because that's what has happened. These two worlds collided. Yeah, you can make it distasteful if you wanted to, like, glorify the person or take away from the story of the victims or whatever, but that's never my intention, and I think people know that. But, yeah, mm -hmm. so just... There will be a lot of focus on the perpetrator's life because it is, it's a really important part of this case and a part that I really do think that we can gain a lot of information and answers from. So mm -hmm. just wanted to mention that. Thank you. All right. Here we go. Hit it. In December 2004, Brent Springford Jr. admitted himself into the Centennial Peaks Hospital in Louisville, Colorado for a psychiatric evaluation. Brent told hospital staff that he was having visions of blood and violence, and he thought he might have murdered his parents. The police intervened, and Brent told investigators that just two weeks prior, on Thanksgiving Day, he went to his parents' home in Montgomery, Alabama, and laid in wait. His parents, Winston Brent Sr., and Charlotte Springford finally arrived home that evening, and Brent brutally attacked and murdered them. His parents had been worrying about Brent's declining mental health, but no one suspected that he was capable of committing such an atrocious act, especially towards people as loving and doting as his own parents. Oh my god. I was just watching you, just... listening, stroking your beard like... Fuck. I was like, we're just right into it, aren't we? Yeah, I'm not going to bury the lead. Got <laughs> <laughs> <A> moxie, kid. <laughs> so let's start with getting to know these, you know, loving and doting parents. All right. So I said that the father's name is Wen Winston. No, Win I didn't. I didn't. Uh, his name was Winston, darling. Winston, not Winston. Oh, Winston. I, couldn't, I combined Brent, Brent and... And Winston and got Winston. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm already off to a strong start. Okay. Winston Brent Sr. But he he went by Brent. He didn't go by Winston. So if I'm referring to the father, it's Brent Sr. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's just Brent for the son. Okay. Thank you. So Brent Sr. and Charlotte were described as doting parents with huge hearts. And they were the type of people that you'd never forget. Together, they built... A very affluent life. They both held master's degrees and together they owned and operated the Pepsi Cola bottling company in Luverne, Alabama. Oh shit, really? Yeah. Wow. And this this specific company actually brought in more revenue to Crenshaw County than any other in the area. And as a major employer in the area, they were very well known and well well respected. Hmm. Brent Sr. was the president of the company and his right hand man. One of the plant managers was a man named Jerry Armstrong, who was also Brent Sr.'s friend. Like, they were really, really close friends. Mm -hmm. be, I just wanted to mention that because Jerry, Jerry comes up later. And also, imagine your right-hand man is also, like, one of your best friends. 
in your company, you'd be like, fuck yeah. We're yeah, just, you're just having, having a blast yeah. at work. Yeah. Always having a great time. Yeah. And his wife worked there too. So it's like, they're not even at work, man. They're just with, with friends. Yeah. Brent Sr. and Charlotte raised their son, Brent Jr., and daughter, Robin, in a restored 1920s home located in Montgomery's historic Garden District, an area filled with Victorian and classic revival architecture and as part of the American National Register of Historic Places. Sounds beautiful. Oh, my God. Yeah, I looked at pictures. Yeah. Whew, so beautiful. Yeah. So, so beautiful. So beautiful. It gets... Whew, whew, whew. Oh, my. Where's my... My handheld fan, you know uh, that you're thing. You're getting the vapors. <laughs> <laughs> I am prosperity. Oh, I can't perspiring. I am prosperity. <laughs> I, I am prosperity. Prosper, pos. <laughs> I am prosperity. That's not even a real word. It's getting pussy in here. Is it just me? That's no. <laughs> that's disgusting. <laughs> it's just you. Immediately, no. It's just me. <laughs> Fair. All right, so Brent Sr. and Charlotte were the type of family that had big, fancy black tie gatherings each Christmas. So oh, they were legit. Like a southern black yeah. tie gathering? Yeah, we're in Alabama. Oh, that sounds so fancy. Hell yeah. Brent Sr. and Charlotte were also known for their philanthropy. I oh, you got it this time. I practiced. It's hard to say. They were known for their philanthropy because they contributed a ton of their time and money to both the Laverne and Montgomery communities in Alabama. Okay, I, I'm imagining these people <laughs> as like Southern Gothic debonairs. Okay, well, well, I wish they weren't Gothic. That'd be so cool. You know, so black tie was like, nope, they're Gothic now. <laughs> they're Gothic. It's black tie. It's black makeup. It's all of it. Mr. Um, and Mrs. Murder. Just ignore Brent Jr. Oh, that's a <laughs> big ask of you. <laughs> oh, they seem lovely, though. That's what they look like. Yeah, yeah. they're really just wholesome. That's, that's not, not zooming in. I tried to zoom in. <laughs> just don't look at Brent Jr. He's scary. Yeah, they look like really nice, happy people. Yeah, they just look... They're holding some kind of... And like, Brent award. Jr. is... um. Well, he's somewhere else right now. <laughs> <laughs> he is staring through the camera. He looks, he's seen better days. Yep. Actually, speaking of Brent Jr., one of the parents' uh, charities was their son, Brent Jr. What? <laughs> Before I showed you that photo, I was talking about their philanthropy. Yeah. Then I said one of the charities was their son, Brent Jr. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you better be. So they they funded their son Brent Jr.'s trips around the world, his education, they paid for his house in Colorado, they bought him his two vehicles, and they were giving him, a grown-ass man, a monthly allowance of between $800 to $900. Okay, you're going to ask me the question. Right? <laughs> in 2004, <laughs> they're getting, he's getting between $800 and $900. What is that today? Oh, God. Oh, I'm going to hate this because we were alive for this one. We were. Yeah. That's a fact. Thirteen to sixteen thousand dollars. Sixteen hundred, I mean. Oh, it's like sixteen hundred, not thousand. <laughs> we live in rough times, but not like that. We're real loving it now. I forget what you even just said. What? Thir Thirteen hundred to sixteen hundred. Okay, honestly, that's a pretty good guess. Yeah. Um, eight between eight and nine hundred dollars in two thousand four. 
is between 1200 and 1400 oh okay. so that was a good guess thanks so yeah in 2004 brent jr would have been like 28 and he was oh getting oh my god he was just free riding it he's just getting this money so they're also paying for his credit card and right before their their deaths they had told him that they were going to get rid of the credit card they he didn't they weren't going to pay for it anymore so if he needed a credit card open up his own take care of it mm-hmm. and they were still financially supporting him in a lot of ways but they were trying to just slowly pull back so that he would become more financially independent like hey you're a grown-ass man yeah and you need to learn how to work in any capacity please pretty much yeah so brent jr's early life there's not very much information available um pinsky that's the author of that book i mentioned he is still heavily involved with the case and he's always looking for more people from brent's life to interview so that he can kind of continue to build this portrait and just see what his early life was like see what if he had always been who he was or what the case is with this man has he always been who he was yeah well, you know i know what you mean yeah you know what i'm trying to say <laughs> so We'll start by talking about Brent um, in, in like his teens. So he attended a private high school in Montgomery, uh, Alabama, <laughs> where he was apparently liked by his teachers. After graduating the high school, he attended Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. Vanderbilt University is a very prestigious school. Yes. Um, I looked it up. Because I'm not American, and I do find it fascinating how they have, like, just, like, Ivy League schools and stuff. Like, it's just so cool. Yeah. Like, it's just different. Yeah. Uh, It's not an Ivy League school, though. (laughs) But it is very prestigious. It's not Harvard. Yeah. I didn't know there's only eight Ivy League schools. I didn't know that either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not going to look it up again. But I'm taking You hear that? If you don't go to one of those eight, you're just riffraff. You're just kind of prestigious. You're never going to work at Goldman Sachs. You don't make the cut. (laughs) Says us. Canadians. The Canadians. (laughs) (laughs) Brent was interested in mission trips, traveling to Latin America to build roads. In his second year of university, he was about 20 years old, and this is when he began to change, at least outwardly. People started to notice he was behaving a little bit different. Mm-hmm. He started reading more about Eastern religion and taking corresponding courses at school, and his parents were noticing a change in his behavior, but they didn't really know what to make of it because they didn't know whether his this change was like typical early 20s stuff. Like, um, you know, he's growing up, he's finding himself, he's moved away from home, he's separated from his family. Like, I, I don't know. I love that there, it sounds like their mentality is like they're skipping a decade. Like, you know how people go like, it's just a teen phase. Like, they've just skipped teenage and it's like, oh, he's in his 20s. So it's it, the equivalent. Yeah. They're just like, I don't know. Maybe it's just what happens when you're 20. I don't know. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, so like maybe this changes because he's 20. Uh, maybe the change is just part of his spiritual quest or they were wondering if maybe something else was going on so there was a family history of bipolar disorder on his mother's side but at this time in brent's life he didn't know that history existed Mm -hmm. so it was this sort of like silent worry that his mother thought about like like what if his his behavior changes are due to the bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. but 
you know, she, again, silent worry. She never really mentioned it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so not knowing for sure what was up with their son, his parents humored his desire to embark on a spiritual quest, and Brent dropped out of Vanderbilt University. Oh. The next year, he spent time at more than a dozen monasteries and retreats all across the U.S. and Mexico, all on his parents' dime. He's just really into Leonard Cohen right now. Why? Leonard Cohen <laughs> stopped everything and became a monk for two years. Oh, or yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I beg me. I, I, I've heard that. Don't Mommy, know Daddy, about it. I am quitting school to become a beatnik. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did. He quit school and he started traveling around. Going right. to monasteries, um, and uh, like I said, all on his parents' time. And pretty yep. much anything this guy does is on his parents' time. His parents were hopeful that these quests were just something Brent needed to like get out of his system, and then he'd chill out and go back to Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Spoilers: He doesn't go back to Vanderbilt, no. <laughs> and we're not really sure if he ever gets it out of his system. Yeah, well, that picture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm, if I'm a betting man. <laughs> I'll post the picture. You guys could see what I mean. Yeah. During his travels, he met people who had attended Oberlin College in Ohio and spoke really highly of its Buddhist studies. So Brent decided that he wanted to go there. And his parents weren't thrilled, but they were like, fine. I mean, I guess school is school. So it's better than you just traveling the world on our dime. Yeah, fair. Yeah, that lasted a week, and then oh. he was back on his quest, oh. traveling to more monasteries, still on his parents' dime, and they were really getting impatient with him. Mm -hmm. They just wanted him to settle down and have a traditional life. They wanted him to go back to school. They wanted him to start a career and, you know, start growing up. Yeah, like actually living your life. Yes. So when Brent was like, I want to attend Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, his parents were like, hell yes, and they were pumped because it seems like he was taking it seriously. He declared a major in religious studies with a focus on Buddhism. He liked his classes, and he even found a roommate that he quickly became great friends with. And their friendship was so strong that she actually introduced him to her parents. Oh. So um, Pinsky, again, the author, mm -hmm. interviewed the former roommate who wanted to remain, remain anonymous. So I'm just going to yeah. call her the roommate. Right. And he learned that Brent, at this point at least, was seemingly very like kind and selfless and was just interested in being a good person. Mm -hmm. So Pinsky said, quote, the roommate's father was dying and it was putting a lot of stress on her and her family. Brent took to the father and began visiting with him. Brent would sing to him, pray with him. Sometimes he would sleep on the floor next to his bed. And for this, the roommate and her mother were extremely grateful. Brent wouldn't take any money. They had hired help, but the help ha they had hired help, but the hired help just didn't work out. Oh and my the, god, Dr. Seuss. That's what this <laughs> quote says. Pinsky's like Dr. Seuss, I guess. They had hired help, but the hired help just didn't work, and Brent just did it because he wanted to do it. Oh my god. He's a better writer than a speaker, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I still haven't gotten the book yet. It's in the mail. So Brent's mother, Charlotte, visited him in Colorado and got to see the way that he interacted with this uh, roommate's father. And it made her really hopeful that Brent had maybe found a calling um, caring for others because she knew about these quests he was on to try and um, find himself and see what his purpose was and kind of get in tune with himself spiritually. And he's, she saw how he 
treated this dying man and was like, wow, this is actually very moving. Mm-hmm. Like maybe this is his calling. Mm-hmm. I personally doubt that. <laughs> I believed <laughs> his calling was anything specific, like caring for people. Yeah, I know. I just think he was so desperate to find some sort of spiritual awakening or healing and was just hoping that this experience in particular would maybe open something up for him or like guide him somehow into knowing what his next step should be for that. Yeah, he sounds very wayward, like lost in mm-hmm. in like himself, like not able to figure out what the fuck he's even doing. Exactly. Yeah. He's not really grounded at all. No. Um and, and then all on his parents dying probably just made it so much worse. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And like you're saying how he's like wayward and not really sure what he wants to do, switching schools, mm-hmm. dropping out, going back hitting the road going back on the road going to a new school mm-hmm. um he was just always craving this spiritual enlightenment and hoping to find someone who could help him achieve this because mm-hmm. again he's not very independent uh, it almost sounds narcissistic it seems that way for it's, sure it's like it just like sh- like thinly veiled narcissism like of course i'm destined to find enlightenment i'm gonna yeah. be the enlightened one i'm gonna be the next buddha like mm-hmm. jesus christ dude it is worrisome for yeah. sure. Um, so yeah, looking for someone to help him achieve this. Uh, he, when he so when he met a woman named Carolyn Scout, he thought he found that someone. And during this time, when Brent is spending all of his time with the roommate's family, Carolyn was counseling the family, and providing them with breathing ses- sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Let's talk a little bit about Carolyn because she will come up so much more in this story. Okay. So not a lot is known about her. Uh, But in a nutshell, she claimed to be the orphaned child of one of the last Apache medicine women. She was raised by her grandmother. She had four children. She was a practicing shaman who gave breathing sessions to people around Boulder. And she was 24 years older than Brent. That's a That's... To say there's a lot to unpack there is an understatement. It's a lot. I know. It's so much. It's quite a bit. Uh, Yeah. Orphaned child of one of the last Apache? 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 Apache medicine women. (sighs) She's a practicing shaman. You know what a shaman is, right? People, People know what shaman is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it's just a healer or a prophet. Mm hmm. That's yeah, yeah. putting it That's so a... <laughs> vaguely. But... These two gravitated to each other quite yes. violently, didn't they? Yes. Uh, uh, literally, my next note here is Carolyn immediately captivated Bren, and mm. he thought she was the one that could help him reach spiritual enlightenment. He had been reading a ton of books. Um, obviously, I mentioned about Eastern, um, Eastern religion, pra- trying to practice Buddhism, stuff like that. And yeah. uh, in one of these books, it mentioned that your spirit guide will come to you. Mm-hmm. And he really believed that them being in the same place at the same time was the universe giving him his spirit guide. Hey, hey baby, you're <laughs> here. I'm here. Why don't we achieve enlightenment, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Can we put that on a T-shirt? <laughs> we write that down. Orphan child of the... Last remaining knob wench. <laughs> You're welcome.
Brent finished his first semester at Naropa University in the spring of 1999. Carolyn invited him to spend the summer at her place in Newcastle, Wyoming, which is almost five hours north of Boulder, Colorado. Long drive. Yeah. Yeah, when I say like five hours or two hours, whatever, I'm just putting into Google Maps how long does it take to drive there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So like as the crow flies or something, because that's not an option. (laughs) Brent would do the chores on her property in exchange for Carolyn teaching him about Native American culture and traditions. So apparently... I don't know how big exactly this property was, but it was like a good size. And based on a couple of things I read, there was like different animals and stuff on the property. Okay. It was just kind of like doing like handiwork and taking care of the animals and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, this sounded like a dream to 24-year-old Brent who didn't really want to be in school, didn't really want to be working. Instead, he could just go up to Wyoming and hang out on a property with his guide all day. Yeah. But of course, he had to ask permission from his parents, even though he's 24, because he, yeah, they're still funding literally everything he does. Yeah. And, you know, they did say yes, as always. Oh, no. Uh, but uh, they did go to visit him that summer in Newcastle, um, likely as like a sort of check-in, just to be like, you move to Boulder, which is so far away from Montgomery, Alabama, and then you mm-hmm. move in another five hours north. Yeah. So we're just going to kind of come in, check in, see what you're doing up here. Yeah, what is our son, who we're paying for his entire lifestyle, mm-hmm. getting himself into? Pretty much. Yeah. And remember, all the while, they're like, he's just so, he's just behaving so different. Like, kind of wanted to keep tabs on him a bit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, maybe, we'll say, well, yeah, I'll say it's a good thing that they did come up to visit because together they all went to a Native American festival where Carolyn was leading a number of sessions, and it was here that Brent's parents witnessed Brent have his first mental breakdown of sorts. Oh. So Pinsky had interviewed um, a couple of people that uh, saw this breakdown or whatever we want to call it. Episode. Episode, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and he said, quote, He was acting weird, so weird that the elders asked, What's this guy about? He was interrupting people and drawing attention to himself. His parents were upset because this was the first time they'd seen him acting in a really weird way, end quote. Mm-hmm. So this was the first time that they were like, okay, yeah, like not even just through like phone calls and letters and stuff, he's acting weird. Like now we're seeing he's, something's just not right. And this was, uh, like I said, the first time, definitely not the last though. Mm-hmm. The second time that they started to get really concerned was in December of that year, oh, which is 1999. When Brent went home to Montgomery for his parents' annual black tie holiday gathering. Oh, no. And you can imagine it's so this it's Alabama, it's the South, it's fancy black tie party. It's, it's, it's major opportunity for some serious culture clash going on. For sure. And you're, you know, the owners and operators of the Pepsi Cola company and yep. you're prestigious in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And your son shows up with a freshly shaven head and wearing a monk like robe and speaking to everyone really, really, really weird. Uh, oh no. His parents were mortified. Yeah. Because it's this annual party they do. It's also obviously like a networking situation. Yep. And he shows up and is just... There's nothing yeah. wrong with this, but there's a time and a place and, and you know what your part this party's about. And yeah. And you show up like that. Yeah. So they were like, oh my God, Brent. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a they, black... It's a, 
It's a yeah. black tie party. Yeah. What and did you show up in? He shaved his head and wore a robe. Yeah. It's described as monk-like. I have no idea if that's true, but that's what the article said. Monk-like. That's monk. my favorite. It's not monk. It's not even monk because he's not studying. He's a monk. He just shows up as in a fucking Julius Caesar cosplay. I was going to say, he's probably wearing a <laughs> hotel bedroom sheet wrapped around himself. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Looks so, like one of the fucking Belushi brothers. <laughs> not as cool. Not as cool at all. At all. No. They speak strange, but it's at least interesting. We're on a mission from God. <laughs> mm. Mm? so yeah his parents were mortified they were desperate to get him some sort of help so they were hoping that carolyn who brent seemed to admire and i mean they they were spending like the entire summer together she was like yo come and live with me at my home mm-hmm. so they're like hey well he's spending this time with her he really admires her let's see if that if she can convince him to seek psychiatric help and also why don't we ask her to sort of act as like a caretaker that's a lot to ask of someone. It's a lot of task of someone for sure. Yeah. In exchange for being a caretaker, though, his parents w- would send her money. Well, okay. I mean, like, so it's a job they're offering her. Essentially. Yeah. So they did start sending her really large checks. I don't know how large, but comically large. They're like, yeah, it was about two two cents in each check, but those checks were like five they're feet fucking wide. Fucking huge, yeah. <laughs> So I don't know how much they actually were, but I mean, they're pretty generous. Um, just look at the life that they're giving their son who's doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So they also started attaching letters addressed to Brent in these checks because they couldn't reach him anymore. They couldn't get him on the phone. He wasn't returning letters. The only way they would have any sort of correspondence with him was he would just sporadically send them like random faxes. That is so weird because I was definitely ready for you, like, I was definitely ready for you to say, like, he was, like, disconnecting with any form of technology, but then you were, like, letter writing, and I'm like, okay, time out. Mm-hmm. But then he adopts faxing. Yeah, he's just, a, he'll just, just like, Just another send... reason that I fucking hate fax machines. I know. It's so upsetting. Who uses a fax machine? This 2000. God damn Around it. this time, it's, like, between 2000 and 2003 that all this is going down. So mm-hmm. it's like, fine, fax machine, whatever. People are still maybe anti-email. But like, <laughs> yeah, you won't answer letters. You won't take a phone call, but you'll just like random faxes that like weren't really addressing anything in the letters that his parents were trying to get to him. He would just send like random faxes back. <laughs> they, they were just kind of completely tangential. Yeah. That's so upsetting. It's really, really upsetting. Oh, parents must have been so concerned. Yeah, and they're, like, so far away, right? Like, Alabama to Wyoming is, I believe it was, like, 25 hours drive or something. It's really far. Yeah. So it's, like, they can't just, like, go and drop in. Yeah. So they were relying really heavily on Carolyn to at least relay messages in the letters that she was getting. Mm -hmm. Um, Charlotte was hammering home the fact that Brent needed psychiatric evaluation, but apparently Carolyn wasn't getting anywhere with Brent either who brent like brent just kept saying like no i don't need treatment i don't want it i'm repeatedly refusing mm-hmm. and carolyn was finally like in september 2000 she was like okay i am going to leave you if you don't get help you need help i'm gonna kick you off my little property you're living on we won't be, we won't be friends anymore i'm not your guide anymore if you don't get help so he was finally like okay 
of September 2000, he did <laughs> get some help. <laughs> okay. So he went to um, Rapid City in South Dakota, which is apparently the closest largest city, the closest large city to Newcastle, Wyoming. Okay. So he went there um, to this facility in Rapid City and he was diagnosed for the first time with bipolar disorder and he was given medication. So Brent hadn't been working or attending university, you know, shocking. (laughs) And um, he would say it was because his behavior was so erratic and like he was having, he he couldn't focus or like hold down any sort of responsibility. Um, And then getting the diagnosis of having a bipolar disorder, he was like, okay, well, this is why. And then remember, his parents had been supporting him by sending him an allowance. He was getting that $800 to $900 a month. Mm-hmm. And this was because he had, hadn't been working or anything. Yep. So the medications he was prescribed started taking effect, and he claimed to have felt a little bit better. So he decided that he would start to work. He would give it a try. And of course, he did not tell his parents this so that he could keep pocketing that money that they were sending oh, him. Oh, that's so greasy. Yep. So he was pocketing that extra eight to $900 on top of the salary that he was making. So the psychiatric care that Brent was receiving, like I said, was in Rapid City, South Dakota. But Charlotte thought that Boulder, Colorado, Colorado, (laughs) thought Boulder, Colorado had better facilities. So she and Brent Sr. purchased Brent and Carolyn and her children a home in Boulder. Okay. (laughs) Just why not? The home was situated on seven acres of land in Windsor, Colorado, which is about um, an hour's drive north of Boulder. Yep. And Carolyn and her kids moved into this four hundred thousand dollar home. Oh, oh, good fucking Jesus! Four hundred thousand dollar home. <laughs> but like, what do you think that is worth? Today? <laughs> <laughs> so, a four hundred thousand dollar home in two thousand one is a almost six hundred and seventy thousand dollar home in twenty twenty two. Wow. And they just bought this house for them. And if you'll notice, I said Carolyn and her kids moved in. Brent continued to live in Wyoming. Oh, yeah. Which was four hours away. Yep. Working at an oil company and sleeping in his truck even in the winter. He was also sending all of the money he made to Carolyn. And he was no longer taking his medication. Oh, my God. So. Fuck, guy. So that's a lot. I know. So he is working. But he stopped taking his medicine, and he just lives in Wyoming in a truck. And Carolyn and her children move into this brand new home that was bought for the Springford son. Like, yeah, some caretaker she is. Yeah, she's like, oh, your mom and dad bought a house. Don't mind if I do. <laughs> Great. Have fun in Wyoming in your truck. Did you see he was working for an oil company? Mm-hmm. Oh, God, that's not a good combo either. Mm-hmm. Every story I've ever heard of that is just like how fucked it is working there. Yeah, it was like like some kind of rig. Ugh. So like not a fun job. No, not a fun job and also like mentally and physically tasking. Exactly. He's going to be Ta- like... Taxing. Taxing. What I Tasking? Tasking. It's tasking. <laughs> I don't like tasks. I'm not a task guy. It's, it's okay. I can tell. <laughs> But yeah, it like burns you out real fast. And then also like mentally you're just fried. So like add like mental health problems on top of that and no medication. And you make a very good point about saying like how like it just will burn you out. Mm -hmm. You'll you'll be like exhausted. 
So, uh, yeah, he's this is the situation he's in. Meanwhile, Carolyn and her kids are living in the house that was just bought for him. And his parents were also supporting Carolyn. So he was sending all the money he was making to Carolyn and his parents were supporting Carolyn. They were sending money for home improvements because it was a home that they thought their son was living in. Yeah. They were sending birthday gifts to Carolyn's children. And they were even providing tuition for the older kids to attend community college. And all because they believed Carolyn was acting as their son's caretaker, who was actually sleeping in a truck four hours away. I can't believe that. That's that's so greasy. It's so it's greasy. It's incredibly suspicious. Uh, And you know what? I didn't put this in my notes, but I did read somewhere that I think it was in the article in Boulder Weekly. Carolyn's kids didn't even like Brent. They like didn't respect him. They were little assholes to him. Um, probably because of the way that they saw Carolyn treat him, because she was reported to have like belittled him and berated him in front of everyone and stuff. Yeah, that doesn't usually come from nowhere. Yeah, so the yeah. kids, some of them were older, like I said, they were going to college. But there was two younger ones. So they're seeing your their own mother talk to someone that way. They're gonna be like, Well, I'll I'll treat him like he's a loser too then. Mm-hmm. So like I'm not calling him dad exactly the mentality (laughs) and his like brent's parents are helping support these kids and these kids are little fucking dicks yep like this whole situation is so it's just so frustrating that's why i made that point of saying like it's all very important to talk about it's painting an incredibly full picture of all these people involved yeah she's just taking full advantage of the situation yes yes she is completely yeah she's taking everyone for a ride Mm -hmm. so you had mentioned you made a good point about how this job would burn even like the most strong-willed of people it could burn them out oh yeah um so this job in wyoming for brian it was not going well he crashed <laughs> his car a few times because he would fall asleep at the wheel when driving between the work site and the newcastle home to continue his chores because carolyn was like you still have my, I don't want to get rid of my property you still have to go there and like do your chores that is part of our deal oh, i was doing that on top of everything mm-hmm. oh so he crashed the car a few times because he'd fall asleep and so he lost his job and Brent finally moved to Windsor to be with Carolyn and he got a new job at another oil company, <laughs> this time in Fort Lupton, 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 which is approximately 40 minutes south of their home in Windsor. Okay. So I don't know the exact timeline time of how long it took him to actually move into this house that was bought for him, but it was like a while, like at least a few months. Mm-hmm. So uh, Brent's parents finally realized that he had been working this whole time and they stopped paying his monthly allowance, but they were still providing him and Carolyn certain support because, you know, they thought Carolyn was being the caretaker. And even though they stopped with the allowance, they were still like more paying the mortgage on this house and supporting him with his cars and stuff. So still a fucking allowance. <laughs> yeah. Like realistically, you got yeah. a free fucking ride. Exactly. Yeah. Two free rides. Yeah. Two free rides. <laughs> so he began seeing a psychiatrist in Boulder, which remember the whole point of him moving to Windsor and getting that house bought for him was that he would seek psychiatric care mm-hmm. at a better facility. Yeah. So he finally started seeing a psychiatrist in Boulder and he started taking his medications again. Yay. He so sometimes Brent reported feeling better, sometimes not, but his actions remained erratic no matter what he reported to have been feeling. He's having quote-unquote regular episodes, 
banging his head on the floor and against the dashboard of his car. And one of these episodes happened at his psychiatrist's office, which was so intense that it forced the doctor to dismiss him as a patient. Wow. So obviously that's a very confidential thing. It's probably why we don't have exact details, but it was intense enough that that psychiatrist was like, I'm not safe with you. I cannot have you as a patient. Yeah. And after this dismissal, Brent was arrested for shoplifting at a Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? What did he move to Brantford next? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, some people feel a little stressed. They get a little bit of a bipolar episode and they go and shoplift. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I don't have any more details on that, but, you know, he was he was going through it. This combination of behavior led to Brent's first stay in a mental facility. So it's quoted as a mental facility, by the way. Mm-hmm. I would probably have called it something a little bit more <laughs> sensitive. But um, during this mandatory 72-hour hold, he was diagnosed again by a totally separate psychiatrist as having bipolar disorder. So okay. that's, they're really quite certain that that's what he's dealing with. It's confirmed. Twice. It's now 2004. Brent is 28 years old. He has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder by professional psychiatrists in two separate states on two separate occasions. And he has just begun seeing a new psychiatrist because, you know, he had that falling out with the last one. Yeah, a little little incident. Just a small one. (laughs) For some reason, Carolyn decided Brent should see another doctor. Um, As in, like, in addition to his psychiatrist, he he should also go and see this doctor uh, who was a guy or who was a person in Fort Collins, Colorado, who specialized in nutrition and environmental medicine. The doctor suggest I know, just wait. The doctor suggested that Brent was not bipolar, but had heavy metals in his brain, which were causing his episodes. I'm not okay. I know. Sadly for Brent, he liked the idea of this of the treatments the doctor was proposing, because then that meant that it didn't require any sort of like mood altering prescriptions. Uh, So he began treatments with this doctor. The heavy metal treatments involved numerous supplements and a series of procedures where Brent was hooked up to a machine that was said to have pulled the heavy metals out of his brain. What the fuck? Your face is priceless. (sighs) Yeah, so I was actually trying to find information about like... Okay, so if some doctor is trying to tell you that they can use this machine on you that's going to pull heavy metals out of your body or your brain, what would that even look like? Literally couldn't find anything because it's, you know. It sounds so so fucking bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, The closest, like, thing I could find to somebody trying to sell equipment that removes heavy metals from your body is, like, a foot bath that is, is, like electrified almost like it uses electrolysis to heat up like or get the ions moving so that it can start pulling heavy metals out of your body the same technology like they use to like make sure like the paint 
when you spray a car, like the mm. paint attaches to the car better. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. So that was the closest thing I could find. People should be in fucking prison for that shit. Charging money and treating yep. people. Someone who, two psychiatrists, people who've practiced and studied real medicine, yep. have told you that you are bipolar, which is not a joke. And you're some quack. Yep. Can I say that? Quack. He's a fucking quack, yeah. Just be like, no, actually, you're not bipolar. I don't even know you, but you're not bipolar. It's heavy metals in your brain. Also, we're, we have heavy metals in our body. Obviously, you don't want a lethal <laughs> dose of it, but it's normal. You, you require ion, uh, iron, uh, iron, iron to live. Iron, all this shit. copper, magnesium, magnesium, all that. Like you, you should have some heavy metals in your body. Oh, you had a violent mental, mental. Uh, yeah, men- episode. Yeah, they're episode. You should uh, do foot baths about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was actually a foot bath. I'm just telling you. I looked into it. Couldn't find anything except maybe this foot bath. It's honestly it. That would probably upsetting. be the best case scenario because at least his feet would look good, you know. Like, yeah, maybe get a little bit of like some Epsom salt in there. Yep. But yeah, so this is Carolyn's doing, being like, go and see this doctor. He's really great. This was, it was probably a nobody. It was probably just her friend, and they were like scamming him together. Yeah, honestly, like she's kind of a snake oil salesman at this point oh, in my mind, <laughs> and. I wouldn't be surprised if she just had some other friends doing the same bullshit because she's she's taken this family for everything. And oh, my God. I don't think yeah. she she obviously doesn't have friends like interests in mind at all. No, no, so, no, no. You know, he's just doing the dirty work for her at this point, like fixing up her property and providing a free home for her yeah. and her kids. Like, what the fuck? And her two older kids are going to fucking college. Yeah. On the parent on their parents, the parents dime. That's awful. And, um, yeah, so to say that this is potentially some sort of scam, whether Carolyn is involved or not or whatever, it's not that a, a far stretch at all. Um, because the medical bills started piling up. He was seeing this person, this quote-unquote doctor, for a while. And uh, Brent's father, who was paying for everything, started to become suspicious because he couldn't seem to get, like, an itemized bill of what treatment this was that his son was receiving. And he was like, oh, pay this bill, but I need to know what the fuck I'm paying. Yeah. And this doctor couldn't give that to him. So a $15,000 medical bill showed up and it just pushed Brent Sr. over the edge. Yeah. He was convinced that he and his wife, Charlotte, were being conned by this doctor and that Brent it was becoming obvious that maybe Brent and Carolyn were starting to take advantage of them. Like, obviously, Carolyn had been, but they were, Brent Sr. especially, was like, this is all just starting to be too much. Yeah, and it it is kind of weird, because, like, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm kind of, like, not even putting all too much blame on Brent at this point, because the dude is struggling hard. I know, that's why I, so, I made that point of saying, like, we're talking about the perpetrator here. It's what he did is fucked up no matter how you slice it. Yeah. But it's so important to hear the whole story. Yeah, this isn't glorifying anything. This is no. just No, this is just the story. It's and sad though. Yeah, it's it's, it's terrible. All horrible. Sorry to jump in. Did you... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to talk on my podcast. So you were saying something and then I was like, Bruh! No, you just added to it. It's <laughs> absolutely just tragic at this point because I'm not even blaming him all too much. Like I mean, obviously he's culpable for his own actions in many regards and you know like it's not a dismissal of anything he does but the dude was legitimately struggling Mm -hmm. and people were taking advantage which makes it so much fucking harder 
He's not getting the proper treatment. It's it's just a mess, and it's mm -hmm. like it's exactly it's just a mess. Super unfortunate. I agree with you. You're culpable for your own actions, but there is a time when, in Brent's case, he doesn't even really know how to act. Mm -hmm. And there's supposed to be this woman that is a caretaker, which on is on his parents for just hiring a random woman that they didn't know and they just met yeah. once and thought she seemed pretty cool. Yeah, that part is rough, but it's not like they were hiring a caretaker for the like eight year old kid. Like mm -hmm. it was supposed to be like essentially like a friend to watch your grown son's back. Yeah, yeah. So it's just it's also complicated because you can look at it and be like. Well, the parents are, you know, this way, but you can see it from this way. But then again, this part is so frustrating, but yeah. also like... I know, because <sighs> I mean, like, I can see why the parents would would trust her, because Brent just seems very anti-establishment, mm -hmm. like, doesn't want anything to do with a conventional life. No, he doesn't. And I could imagine just saying, like, oh, I assigned a caretaker for you. It's a nurse or a RPN or whatever. And, oh, like, <sighs> I can see him just being like... I am not understand. engaging properly with this person at all. I'm just putting no. up a barrier. But yeah. they probably just thought, like, well, someone close to him, yeah. you know, like, has this kind of, like, caretaker kind of field already, like, background sort of. Not 100%, but, you know. Well, they're supposed to be it's unconventional. Helping, helping people in the community and stuff. Yeah, so. yeah. And they had seen it immediately because Brent did really admire her. That's supposed mm -hmm. to be her spirit, his spirit guide. Yeah. So, like obviously his parents who were hum they say humoring but like at the end of the day it's their son they cared about him they were hoping that he would get something out of these quests and missions whatever that he's going on yeah so to know like oh well at the end of the day this is the one my son respects most mm -hmm. and admires and is like doing his part in their arrangement of i'll teach you spiritual ways traditions culture mm -hmm. and you do my chores for me <laughs> so they're like well obviously yeah. it meant enough to him to do the chores and learn about this and that yeah so just the like the the dynamics the relationships going on here it's just all it's just interesting and devastating and complicated and all worth talking about mm -hmm. so according to testimony from brent's sister robin their father told brent like brent senior told brent that um the parents were going to significantly scale back their monetary support because they got that medical bill and they were just like, what the fuck, son? Yeah. No. Yeah. You're done. You're done. So they were like, oh, we're scaling back monetary support. And if you keep taking us for this ride, we're selling that house. We mm -hmm. bought you this house. You're supposed to live in it. You're supposed to seek help for yourself. You're supposed to try and be stable. We're selling that house. If you can't get your shit together, stop spending $15,000 on bunk treatment. Yep. I like that because it almost seems like they knew. The, that... the dad especially was like, damn it, Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting taken for a ride right now. Yep. So to add to Brent's panic, obviously, because he's hearing, um, we're not giving you an allowance anymore. We're, we're scaling back on how much we financially support you. And if you keep being an idiot, we're selling the house. Mm -hmm. So to add to that, like panic he already had. His parents forbid him from attending his sister's wedding, which happened in October of 2004, because of his increasingly erratic behavior. They're yeah. like, we can't trust you to come here and not make a fool of your sister on her wedding day. Yeah, literally make it not about her anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
because he had a tendency of doing that, of just act, acting out and, and drawing attention, good or bad, onto him. And then it was perfectly reasonable. Yeah, but this yeah. was the last straw for Brent. He, 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 it just totally broke him mentally. You're telling me now I can't even go to my own sister, his own only sibling. Mm-hmm. I can't go to her wedding because you think I'm, I'm crazy, essentially. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so, bus station surveillance footage from Tuesday. <laughs> I said it was the last straw. I'll show them crazy. <laughs> I'll get on a bus. Oh. And the bus station surveillance footage from Tuesday, November 23rd, 2004, shows Brent boarding a bus in Fort Collins, Colorado. He travels to Denver. He boards a bus to Nashville and transfers onto a bus that takes him to Montgomery. And he gets to Montgomery, Alabama on Wednesday, November 24th, the day before Thanksgiving. The last surveillance camera caught Brent running from the Montgomery station in the direction of his parents' home running it's so creepy to me to think about that oh he just beelined it he like got off the bus and just started running in that direction oh my god like so he's he's just unhinged he's not even thinking what he's doing now he's just running to their home oh god after being on a bus for like 22 hours <laughs> he's like mama's here and he runs Gotta stretch my legs huh yeah and he did he ran <laughs> it must have been a sight to see it's gonna get rough is it when Brent okay. arrived at his childhood home on Thanksgiving, his parents were nowhere to be found. They'd driven to Birmingham, Alabama to have lunch with the family because it's Thanksgiving. Brent no longer had a key to the house, but he would later tell investigators that he hid in the backyard for a bit before remembering one upstairs window wasn't connected to the security system, so he just crawled through it and waited. Ew. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. What happened next is debated, but based on evidence at the scene and parts of Brent's confession, we know for sure that when Brent Sr. and Charlotte returned home at 6 p.m., their son was waiting for them with an axe handle close by. Brent likely confronted them about financial support. Uh, things went south, and he chased them around the house, beating them with the axe handle within an inch of their lives, and as they lay dying, he slashed their throats with a kitchen knife so severely they were nearly decapitated. Jesus fucking Christ. Mm -hmm. Okay, they got really bad. I told you. Yeah. I told you. Yeah. The next day, November 26, a man named Michael Shelton arrives at the home. Shelton um, and his team of two other men worked for a construction company called Armstrong Construction, and they were hired by the Springfords to lay tile in their newly renovated kitchen. Oh... Shelton was well acquainted with the Springford family, having done a number of jobs for them over the years, and to the point that Shelton had a key to their home and knew their alarm codes. That says so much. Yep. Brent wasn't even allowed to have a key or know mm -hmm. the alarm codes. And this yep. random dude that just works at a construction company had that. Yeah, no kidding. Entering the home through the four-car garage, I had to mention that. That's a big, that's a big, that's a big fucking garage. Entering the home through the four-car garage, Shelton found that the alarm was off and the couple's Jaguar was gone. Spoiler alert, Brent stole the Jaguar to flee the scene. Oh my god. Brent Sr.'s usually very organized office space was in complete disarray. So this group of men are like making their way through the house and they find even more signs of a struggle. So the um, library and the living room were a disaster. 
Mm-hmm. And so this, they began to suspect a burglary because mm-hmm. it looked like things were ransacked. Yeah. So calling out for Brent Sr. and Charlotte, Shelton and the other men made their way upstairs. At the top of the stairs, they immediately saw dried blood everywhere and they just stopped. They called their boss, Jerry Armstrong. Does that name sound familiar? It does sound familiar. It's the manager at Pepsi-Cola Bottling Company and right. Brent Sr.'s like... BFF. Yeah, Jerry. So that's why this company was hired is because Jerry also owns this company. And so Brent Sr. is like, of course, I'll like help your company by hiring them to work on my home, which is also why they were so trusted to have a key mm-hmm. and the alarm codes. Okay. So they called Jerry and um, uh, Jerry Armstrong instructed his employees to leave the house while he called the police. And then Jerry raced over to check everything out. Mm-hmm. Check on his employees. Check out on his like good friend. Yep. Uh, Jerry was the first person to see the bodies, and later said, "Quote: It was the worst day of my life. It was a lot of blood, lots of blood, and it was in a couple different areas too. It was pretty obvious that something really, really bad had happened." Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's finding your like one of your best friends just dead, and their head is almost off. Oh my god, that's so you can almost hear him traumatized in that statement. Yeah, you can see his eyes are just wide, like staring off into the distance. Like, oh, yeah, there was blood, like he's back in it, lots of blood. Yeah, that part. <laughs> and there's everyone who saw this scene said the same thing like, Holy hell, there was blood everywhere! Oh, everywhere, there was blood that everywhere. Fucking sucks. And um, one of the people that were on the prosecution side said that. Um, you could almost see the like movement of them getting chased around the house. And There's beating. just so much blood. Oh. Yeah, and where it like went up the stairs as he was like beating them. It's it's God. so horrifying. So the police showed up quickly, and within half an hour of their bodies being discovered, the house was a crime scene. take long for people to suspect that Brent was involved, but he was living in Colorado, which is 22 hours away at the time, and hadn't been expected home for Thanksgiving. In fact, no one had seen him, no one had heard from him, and there wasn't even any solid evidence at the crime scene that could have led investigators to believe Brent was there and could have done it. Mm-hmm. All they had at the crime scene was Brent's fingerprint in the hallway, but like it's his childhood home. He he lived in this house for a better part of his life. So yeah. it's really not surprising that his fingerprint would be in the hallway. Yep. Um it wasn't specified as being this, but my thoughts are maybe it was his fingerprint in blood. Possibly. Oh yeah. So they obviously were like, Well, yeah. I doubt in this hmm. gorgeous, beautiful home that hosts magnificent parties and such that they would just have a random bloody fingerprint on the wall at all times. <laughs> so, you know, I think I'm just saying that it might I believe it could have been a bloody fingerprint, which is why they were really holding on to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A multi-state investigation began first in Tulsa, Oklahoma where investigators found the Springfords Black Jaguar and collected evidence from it. 
This part is so weird to me because it's never mentioned again. Tulsa, Oklahoma is like 10 hours away. Yeah. So like he he drove the car down there and abandoned it. And then how the hell did he get back home? Yeah. And like it, it's just the weirdest. He took a bus again, do you think? I mean, probably, but I have no idea. It's never mentioned again like solidly from police mm -hmm. how he got home after ditching the car because he definitely took that car from the jaguar from their house yeah because like i said when the that construction crew went in the car wasn't there mm -hmm. and they've tulsa oklahoma police found it 10 hours 10, oh, 10 hours away and then there's nothing from police saying like, well, this is what we believe how he got from like point A to B, how he would have made it back home all the way up to Colorado. Right. Nothing. The only information I could find was people like speculating on it, like um, like some articles by like different news outlets and stuff saying like, well, maybe this is what happened. Like just opinion pieces of like, here's maybe how he he got home. Mm -hmm. And some of them were really interesting, but as they, these were articles that were written, like, as the case was unfolding. Right, okay. So it, they were really interesting. It was cool to see, like, the thought process people had. Mm -hmm. But, like, as you know the case and what's happened, there's already so much information in there that doesn't add up. Yeah. So I wasn't going to include it here. Yeah. So that that's that, though. Like, the police never publicly comment on how the hell he got home. And how this car was in Oklahoma. Yeah, that's so odd. That's a huge hole in the story, too. There's no other ties, like, that I could find to Oklahoma. Like, I don't know. Whereas, like, we are kind of bouncing around all over the place. We're going, like, Alabama is... Alabama. Alabama. Is his home state. That's where his parents lived. Mm -hmm. um, Colorado, he moves around the same kind of area in Colorado. We go to Wyoming because that's where Carolyn has a home. We went into like South Dakota very briefly because it's the next large city maybe, to Wyoming. Maybe he just hit a highway and just kept driving until he yeah, like ditched he, it because he was just, he was obviously just frenzied or something. Yeah, frenzied. Just. But then, like, yeah. I mean, for sure, I can see that him hopping on the highway and just ditching this car so that it's not attached to him anymore mm -hmm. like why drive 10 hours then or did he like just leave it the crime scene in it and like ditch it not that far outside of montgomery and then someone else took the car like they found it and just stole it maybe then wouldn't there be evidence that someone else was in the car yeah i feel like that would come up but then well, but then so would... would be how you got home yeah so okay fair enough so then he ditches it in <laughs> tulsa oklahoma how the hell does he get back to colorado walked yeah, just <laughs> heel toe express, duh. Yeah. So yeah, that part is wild to me. So hopefully when the when I get the book, um, hopefully Pinsky is elaborated on that part more because he was so heavily involved mm -hmm. with the research and the police records and the whole case. Um, I would like to know if that part is in the book so I can use my mind because <laughs> it's so weird to me. And Oklahoma never comes up again. Yeah, and his car is there harping on it a lot i'm sorry but it's weird <laughs> <laughs> so brent was named a person of interest not a suspect because like i said they didn't really have evidence they just had that fingerprint that i'm not sure it was bloody or not but i'm fairly comfortable saying that it was probably a bloody fingerprint 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's the uh, he's number one person of interest. There's no like suspects identified by authorities, but it would take a few days before they could pinpoint his whereabouts. Okay. And that's where we're going to end it for part one. <gasps> All right. <laughs> 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 I I'm threw so much information at you guys, but um, you, you left us right in the thick of it. I had to. <laughs> I had to, or else it would just keep getting thicker. <laughs> it doesn't stop thickening. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you shave your legs, it comes back thicker and darker. Everyone knows that. <laughs> that was stupid. What do you think so far? I think this is such a... It's such a complicated story, like, emotionally. That's why I just kept, I couldn't stop researching. Because mm -hmm. I was like, but there has to be something more to this. There has to be something more to that. And then yeah. it just fell down into the rabbit hole, and then it turned into a two-parter, and then I, mm -hmm. I, it is, it's a, it's a deep, it's a deep dive. It's, makes you feel a lot of feelings. Yeah, because sure. you're so conflicted, because you're like, god damn it, like, this was such a violent act, and you're like, Oh, like, you know, you're just so pissed that it happened and it's so tragic. But at the same time, you're like, well, like, this whole thing spiraled. It just absolutely spiraled. Mm -hmm. Because it's like just a perfect, perfect storm for it to happen. And it sucks so much. It definitely does. Yeah. And then, yeah, exactly. The spiral. And as it's spiraling, it's just looping in other people and events and stuff and yeah, it's like just people were this, taking advantage of it's just turned into like a clusterfuck yeah it's just a mess we're not even done we're, we're just, not even done we're just in the thick of it we're just in a thick part of this story thick oh lord she's thick <laughs> anything else no that's it all right so in part two I will tell you guys about Brent's life following the murder, you know, like his actions and movements in the days and weeks after, and then the subsequent arrest, his quote unquote trial, and some suspicious circumstances in suspicious circumstances <laughs> involving someone who we've been talking about quite heavily. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned and be sure to join us next week to hear all about it as we continue into the thick of it into the thick of it into the thick of it <laughs> so thank you again to um at elfman danny yeah thanks elfman for that five star review still thinking about it still Love makes you, me really helpy helpy <laughs> holy hell i'm happy this episode's done <laughs> my mouth isn't working it's hot we're all losing our fucking I'm minds so hot i'm yeah. like disoriented Okay, if you guys need something more uplifting after this, which I know I do because I'm sweaty and I'm tongue twisted, go and check out my boys on 100 Horrors. Yeah. We'll put the, we'll put the link in our, in our episode description so it's easier for you. You just click it and you go over there. Just give it a little click. Click a root. Or you tap it, whatever. If you're on a smartphone, then you're tapping it. Yep. And tap um, you just uh, go over there and you listen to 100 Horrors. And then you know what you're doing in there. Fun. You, you, you have a lovely time. Yes. You enjoy very much. Yes. You give those guys five stars because you love it. That's right. Yeah. And guess what else? What? We'll catch you on the dark side. <laughs> <laughs>
Bye.